I was asked to preach uh, at our youth camp uh, two weeks prior to going. Uh, anything that I wanted to consider preaching on the glory of God. Our theme was a passion for God's glory. And as I considered the messages that both the keynote speaker was bringing, as well as the seminars that our other men were teaching, I noticed that while there was a lot of what we should be doing serving God for His glory, it struck me that nobody was talking about God's glory. In other words, We've got to know what it is we're trying to glorify before we can glorify it, if that makes any sense at all. And so out of that was born this one message that the youth tolerated for about an hour and 15 minutes. I'm going to extend it into three or four messages. And and what I would have us consider throughout the entire time together is the consideration that our passion for the glory of God exists solely because of God's passion for His own glory. We would have nothing to glorify if God did not have a passion for His own glory. God is jealous for His own glory. And apart from that, we would have no need to glorify because we would have no God to glorify. And so, before we... What I shared with the young people is before we can even begin to consider our passion for God's glory... It's got to be rooted in God's passion for His own glory. That's why our passion exists. And some of you, uh, I'm sure, have read and are familiar uh, with John Piper's uh, quote that uh, kind of put him on the map many, many years ago uh, from Desiring God. He has a well-known quote, For God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And you really can't preach a sermon on the glory of God without quoting Piper. It just wouldn't work. But what you might not know is how Piper, if you haven't read the book, how Piper deduced that. How he got to the point of logically coming to the conclusion that God is most glorified in us and we are most satisfied in Him. I'm going to take a few excerpts just in opening this morning of how he got to where he did. In the book, he says, the chief end of God. Now, again, that entire statement is built on the first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? And he says the answer would be more rightly to glorify God by enjoying him forever. But he begins here by saying the chief end of God. Now, again, see where I'm going. It doesn't matter what man's chief end is if we don't understand what God's chief end is. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. God has the right and power and wisdom to do whatever makes him happy. None of his purposes can be frustrated. Therefore, he is not deficient or needy. He is never gloomy or discouraged. He is always full and overflowingly energetic for the sake of his people who seek their happiness in him. God employs his sovereignty to display the great object of his delight, his glory, the beauty of of his manifold perfections. He does all that he does to magnify the worth of his own glory. If you don't get anything else out of the series of messages that I'm bringing over these, these weeks, consider the fact it's not about you. It's not about you. Everything that God does is for God. He does all that he does to magnify the worth of his own glory. He would be unrighteous if he valued anything more than what is supremely valuable 
namely himself, and by implication there, his own glory. The happiness of God in God is the foundation of our happiness in God. If God did not joyfully uphold and display his glory, the ground of our joy would be gone. God's pursuit of praise from us and our pursuit of pleasure in him are in perfect harmony. For God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him as he is most satisfied in himself, you see is the conclusion that Piper drew. I agree. And so as we consider these three or four messages, um, I would ask four questions over the next three messages. First, why should we have a passion for God's glory? We'll look at that tonight. Why should we have a passion for God's glory? Secondly, why don't we have a passion for God's glory. We'll also look at that tonight. And then in our second message, the third question, how is it possible or how can we have a passion for God's glory? And then the third message, what does a passion for God's glory require? I'm going to answer all four questions before I start tonight. And it's the title of each message. Why should we have a passion for God's glory? Because we are created for God's glory. Why don't we have a passion for God's glory? Because we are rebellious against God's glory. Third, how can we have a passion for God's glory? Saved for God's glory. And in that particular message, we will look at an exposition of Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, where we have that threefold refrain to the praise of His glorious grace. And then, what does a passion for God's glory require? Serving for God's glory. Tonight, again, the first two, particularly created for God's glory and rebelling against God's glory. So the first thing that we would consider tonight is why should we have a passion for God's glory? And I don't see any of our children in here other than Alyssa. One of the things that we've encouraged all of our parents to do is to work through the catechism, children's catechism with their children. And if you have, as a parent or as a child, have gone through that, you're going to see that I'm going to use that children's catechism as the backdrop for this message this evening, uh, because it asks three questions that are pertinent to our consideration this evening. The children's catechism begins with the question, who made you? And Alyssa, what would the correct answer be? Who made you? God. Every one of our children know that. I love to hear Jacob say, God, and even younger than he is. But that's a very important thing for us to consider before we even get to his glory. Is this truth that God made us? And where do we learn that from? Not just the children's catechism, but the catechism and all of our teachings, Lord willing, come from the word of God. And in Genesis 1.27, we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so in Genesis 1, we learn that we are God's image bearers. That all of his creation has within them this, this longing to worship something. And that he created all of us. And the purpose that we were created was to reflect His image or to reflect 
His glory. The psalmist picked up on that. You remember the, the psalm in 139, in verses 13 and 14. We typically look at these verses in the context of being against abortion uh, uh, and all sorts of other types of things, and it certainly has the place for that. The psalmist wrote, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. But then he says in verse 14, I will give you thanks, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Verse 14 took on a whole new meaning for me on May 18th of this year. If you don't know what happened on May 18th this year, all I have to do is hold up my left hand and you will have a vivid reminder of what happened on that day. And I can remember going to the hospital that day and and already pretty much determining in my mind that the tip of my finger was probably gone. I'd already, the moment it happened, begun to think about how I was going to type with a nub and thanking God that I wasn't a classical guitarist at that point. All of these things were going through my mind. I'm thankful that I was spared from, from any really great pain. But I can remember, as, as Louis will, very vividly, and Josh, who's not here, that they were present in the room, when that doctor's assistant walked in the room and the words, we think we can salvage it, came out of his mouth. It, it was a stunning moment. Probably, I think Josh was more stunned than I was. But as time went on, and the, well, it was that evening... I found out that what they were doing to save my fingertip was to put four loose stitches in my finger. And I can remember thinking, you know, thanks, Doc. I could have done that on my own, you know, when it happened. And we typically think of stitching something together. When we get stitches, they pull it tight so that the wound can't open or anything like that. His purpose in putting loose stitches in, I'll never forget it, was he said the finger needs to heal Itself, And immediately, Psalm 139.14 came to my mind. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that was my prayer for the next three or four days, because those were the most crucial days, he told me, uh, in determining whether we would be able to save the fingertip or not. That if the fingertip took and got life and refreshed itself, then we would be okay. And the interesting thing to me, and Mike, I think, asked this morning about the nerves. They didn't do anything. The nerves healed themselves. Meshed back together. I have complete feeling in the fingertip, and on and on I could go, but I only have 30 minutes tonight. But you you get the, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Every heartbeat, every breath, every part of our body is uniquely knitted together by God. In Acts 17:28, we'll return to that in a few moments, but Paul wrote to those that he or spoke to those that he was preaching, "In him we live and move and exist." In who? In God. And Paul said, "Even your pagan poets know that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So who made you? God. What else did God make?" is the second question of the children's catechism. And the answer is God made all things. He didn't just make us. He made everything that is. We learn that again in Genesis 1-1 where we read, In the beginning God created. I want to stop right there. 
Because what is important, or what follows, is very, very important. When we consider the creative acts of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When we consider the redemptive history of the entire Word of God from that point forward. All of God's Word is important. But particularly as it relates to the creative power of God in creating all things. The simplicity of, in the beginning, God created is what is most important. Sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. We, we get so focused on individual parts and parcels of the Word of God that we miss this enormous, fundamental, foundational truth. You see, the rest of the story is important. If we look at God's Word uh, classically, as Reformers do, as a redemptive history broken into four grand sagas of creation, rebellion, Redemption and restoration. Even then, rebellion, redemption, and restoration would make no sense apart from the beginning point. Creation. When we share the gospel with others, we've encouraged all of you to start with us. To start with Jesus. Maybe. No, we start with God. The Creator God, who by right has all promise and all right to come to all of His creation, saying, worship me, worship me. So our gospel begins with God and then moves on to man and sin and Christ and His person and work and a need for faith in Him. And yes, the final restoration of all things. But we must consider the truth in the beginning God created. Where did Paul start? In dealing with those pagan men in Acts 17 at the Areopagus. In Acts 17, Paul's approach was this at Athens. He said in verse 22, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, Steve may disagree with me as the uh, apologetics guy. And this is one of the great apologetic texts in Scripture, by the way. I don't think Paul's purpose here was was steeped with sarcasm. I think Paul was serious. He he did consider them to be religious, worshipping men. The tragedy is what he sets forth. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. There's the key. First, objects, plural, of your worship. That's a clue right away. Because... Our creative, as we are created, if we are going to worship God, it is the one and only true God. There is not a plurality of gods. And so he says, For while I was passing through examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, I don't have time to spend too much here this evening, but that altar was for the purpose of just in case they missed one, it was the idea. In other words, they were very pluralistic in their approach to worship. And they wanted to make sure they had all of the bases covered. And so just in case they didn't, there was this unknown God. This was kind of the catch-all. Just in case they'd missed one along the way. And then Paul proclaimed, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And where did he start? The God who made the world. That's the unknown God that you worship. The God who made all things in it. That is the unknown God that you worship. 
the God who created the world and all things in it for his own glory from him and through him and to him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. That is the unknown God that you worship. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. There you have it again. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. The psalmist in Psalm 19.1 said that even the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Creation itself cries out God's glory. I don't know how many of you are ever in a situation where you're far enough out in the country to just, to just stand and be able to consider God's creation in the evening. Mike and Margaret, I know probably uh, it gets pretty dark out there in Morris where you live, the suburbs of Morris. But I, one of the things that strikes me every time we go to La Posa on our mission trip, which, by the way, we tell you they don't have electricity. They really, they really do, but you're not supposed to know that. But at night, it's, it's, it's pitch black dark. I mean, I've tripped out of my tent and over guide wires a number of times trying to get to the outhouse. It is dark. And to stand and gaze at the stars. Stars that you, you'd never, ever be able to see with all of the lights in the city. And you're amazed. And you just, you just stare in awe and wonder. As a believer, because we know where it all came from. The psalmist said the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And again, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 verse 19 drew immediate attention to that truth as well. That which is known about God is evident even to the most pagan individual. Without question, a person should be able to stand in La Posa, Mexico and look into the sky on a clear night and ask, where did all of this come from? Why are they always there at night? That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, and this is an interesting twist here for Paul, not the stars, that was part of the creation, not the heavens, not the rainfall, not our human bodies which are so intricately made, that should be a source of things as well when we consider it. But Paul turns here not to that being revealed, but he says, since the creation of the world, His, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through His creation. And being understood through what has been made, so that no man has any excuse not to believe in God. Now, friends, that... Paul does not suggest here that natural revelation can save a man. He goes on in Romans to set that forth. But what he's saying is the very truth of creation should at least drive us to God. Can't save us, but it should at least leave us asking the question, where did this come from? And then the third question of the children's catechism really is what I'm shooting for to bring this all home. For why did God make you and all things? 
And I can remember most children's answer at two or three years old for His own glory. For His own glory. For His own glory. What a fundamental truth for our children to be drilled with into their minds and Lord willing into their hearts at an early age. Proverbs 16.4 It's written, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Implied there is His own purpose. By the way, the rest of that verse says, even the wicked for the day of judgment. Romans 11.36, I've already quoted that. For from Him, the originator, and through Him, the sustainer, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. It was Paul's great prayer in Romans 11. In Revelation 4.11, the wonderful praise, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? They They just didn't pull this out of the air. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. And so when we consider the first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man, we see why God is to be glorified. Why we are to enjoy God forever and ever. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Because God is the God of glory. What do we mean by glory? Well, glory is who God is. Scholars and theologians have have tried to grapple with a a definition of what this means. Some would say it's the sum uh, total of all of his attributes. Um, Some would say it's his name. Some would say it's his light. Some are looking at more of the manifestation of God's glory than the glory itself. But whatever it is, we know that it is inherent to God. God is glory. And so when we consider glorifying God, we need to understand that we don't add to God's glory. God never changes. The glory that He had from before the creation of the world as the eternal God is the same glory that He has today, is the same glory that He'll have tomorrow and forever and ever and ever. When we worship Him, when we glorify Him, we don't add anything to God's glory. And by the way, if we don't glorify God, we don't take away from His glory either. He never changes. So God's glory is who He is. To glorify Him is to agree that He is who He says that He is. That's how we glorify Him. And it's serving Him in our worship and in our devotion to Him. And so, as we consider glorifying God, we must first consider He is the God to be glorified because He is the God of glory. And so, why should we have a passion for God's glory? All men, believer and unbeliever alike, because He created us for His own glory. Secondly, then, we would ask, why don't we? have a passion for God's glory. The fact that He created us, the fact that He created all things, the fact that He demands to be glorified of all of His creatures and all of His creation, 
Why don't we have a passion for the glory of God? Well, it's because we rebel against God's glory. You see, we did read earlier that God created man and woman. And we know in that creation story that He created Adam and Eve. And not only did He create them, but He created a perfect environment and placed them in it. A very real place called the Garden of Eden. Friends, there are those today that will tell you that this is just a moralistic story. It's not a literal thing that took place. Dear friends, all of the Scriptures, again, are founded upon in the beginning God created and everything that follows. Eden was a real place. Adam and Eve were real people. And God created Adam and Eve and He put them in the perfect environment so that they had no needs whatsoever. The the only requirement they really had was to depend on God. He provided everything for them. And so he placed them in the garden with no, with no need what's, needs whatsoever. But he did give one restriction. Remember what that is? Do not partake of that particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I can remember as I was preparing this message or mulling it over in my mind, again, it was at youth camp and most of the work had been done, but I was thinking upon it, meditating upon it. We got to youth camp early, and D'Artre was with us, and I gave him his, his booklet and um, made sure that he'd read all of the rules that we had at youth camp. And he said, yeah, he'd signed the thing saying that he'd read them, and the next thing out of his mouth was, man, that's a lot of rules. Why do we need all those rules? And I began to tell him, you know, it's interesting you ask that. It's, it's because we're... We are sinful creatures and, and, you know, we we need these things to consider others and to consider ourselves and to keep us in line for our own safety and and for the sanity of the adults that are watching over us. But then the thought struck me. Adam and Eve only had one. Only one. That one restriction. And they were placed in the garden and we're not sure how long... A time transpired between being placed in the garden in Genesis 3 where they're approached by the serpent. But we know that that was called a time of probation. It was a time of testing for them to see if they would obey God. Well, we know the rest of the story in Genesis 3, they disobey God. But what we need to consider in Genesis chapter 3 is the essence of sin. You see, that moment... When Eve partook of the fruit, the moment the serpent offered the fruit in the deceiving nature of the God of war, or setting forth deception as to the word of God and what God had said and duping Eve, the moment she took, it was for the purpose of attempting to rob God of his glory. Because you remember the reason she took of the fruit was what Satan had told her. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. And by the way, God had said that. It was just never God's desire for them to know that. So he enters with the deception. Satan wanted to rob God of his glory. Eve wanted to rob God of his glory. Adam wanted to rob God of his glory. And that is what sin is. It is an attempt to assert the authority of God. 
That's been the nature of man ever since. You can look at Genesis 4, following right on the heels of them being put out of the garden so that they could not partake of the tree of life and live themselves. The story of Cain and Abel. And then we move into Genesis chapter 6, where we read that the thought and intent of man's heart was continually evil and wicked. There was none that was doing anything good whatsoever. And even then, God in His grace, God in His goodness, spared eight in sending a flood to destroy all of man and entirely submerging all of creation, save those eight. A new start. And yet, in Genesis 11, again, very shortly thereafter, we read the words of the Tower of Babel. And what's interesting in Genesis 11 are these words. In 11.4, they said, that being the people, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, we've heard that over and over and over again. Typically, the context of preaching on this is that you cannot build your own way to God. God must come to you. That's, that's true. That's a viable approach to this text. But what's often missed are the next words. And let us make for ourselves a name. Let us make for ourselves a name. When we consider name in the Old Testament in particular, especially considering God's name for Himself, it is always attached to His fame, to His glory. And notice what they said. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What happened? God scattered them over the face of the earth in judgment. You see, we need to consider this fact that to sin is to try to make a name for yourself, to glorify yourself rather than to glorify God. That's why we read in Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Psalm 40, or Isaiah 42.8 that we considered in reading earlier, where he says, I am the Lord. That is his covenant name for himself. Yahweh, I will be what I will be for my people. The name that he gave to Moses that day. When Moses asked, what do I tell the people? Who sent me? Tell them this. I am sent you. I am the I am. I am the I will be what I will be for my people. I am the Lord. That is my name. What does he say? My glory, my glory, I will not give to another. You see, God is jealous for his own glory, because if he weren't, he would not be God. And so what we see in Genesis 11 are what I call glory chasers. And dear friends, that describes every one of you. It describes me. It describes every person that chases after anything other than God. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is given to chasing after the wind. To chasing after things that don't matter. And you remember, here was King Solomon who had everything any man could ever want. And he was not satisfied. 
And there's just this recapitulation of chasing after this and failing. Chasing after this and not being satisfied. Chasing after this and wanting more. And on and on it goes. And his conclusion, vanity, vanity, all is vanity apart from God. All is vanity. You see, some of those things that Solomon desired were not evil in and of themselves. Work, pleasure, any number of things that we could go back to. But it's when he took it and twisted it to glorify himself. To make a name for himself. And dear friends, that is the sinfulness of sin. Psalm 106, verse 20. The psalmist in the words preceding those talk about the sins of the fathers. How they had been delivered from Egypt and their sin in not chasing after God. And particularly the sin of when Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what the people were doing at the base of the mountain? They fashioned for themselves their own God. In Psalm 106, verse 20, the psalmist writes, They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Dear friends, that is sin. They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. What did God say? I will not share my glory with another. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 1, in dealing with the natural creation and natural revelation, wrote those words that since the creation of the world that God's attributes have been known so that men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And what? Exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then the words that should strike fear in the heart of any man. Therefore, God gave them over to their own glory chasing. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This should not shock us. What did Eve do in the garden? She exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What did Adam do in the garden? He exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What has every person who has ever sinned in the history of the world done when they sin? They've exchanged the truth of God. For a lie. So ultimately, we read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Why should we have a passion for God? Because we're created for His glory. Why don't we have a passion for God? Because we rebel against God's glory. We try to build our own castle, our own tower, our own way to God and do it in our way, in our time. 
when Paul says the essence of sin is that we fall short of the very reason we were created, the glory of God. Why don't we have a passion for the glory of God? Sin. End of quote. Dear friends, we can paint it any way we try to paint it. Eve tried to do it in the garden. She tried to blame Adam. Adam did it in the garden. He ultimately blamed God, this woman who you gave to me. Right? Dear friends, your sin is your sin. And when we sin, we do attempt to assert the authority of God. We try to put ourselves in God's place. And so as we consider these messages in God's passion for His own glory, may we remember that the very reason we were created was to glorify Him. And how is it that we glorify Him? We glorify Him first and foremost by understanding that we're glory chasers. That we're sinful men in need of a Savior. And that God, who is the all-glorious God, has provided the only way by which glory chasers might truly chase God's glory. And that is through His Son, Jesus Christ, who glorified Him in all ways, in all things, every single moment He was on this earth. And again, when we consider that truth in John 17 and in the high priestly prayer, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you leave them so that they may know you. And he goes on in John chapter 17 to say that he, would, that he desires to share his glory with us. Dear friends, the only way to partake of the glory of Christ is to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then and only then, and you have a passion to glorify God. If you don't know Him this evening, you are living for self. You are separated from God at this very moment, under His wrath, under His judgment. Cry out to Him. If you do know Him as your Lord and Savior this evening, then rejoice and cultivate by the Spirit of God a passion for His glory. Father, we thank You for Your Word. For this truth that every individual that's ever been created is created for You. All of creation is for You. We read in Your Word that even creation groans, longing for the day of the Lord's return. The rocks cry out, and Father, we know that's because of the, the, the taint of our sin on your creation. And so, Father, we too, like the psalmist, do long for the day of your return. May we have a greater passion to live for your glory, remembering that you have most perfectly manifest your glory to your people in your Son, Jesus Christ, who did come to this earth, put on flesh, dwelt among us. And they said we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. May we know more of Christ in our own lives this night. 
This we pray. In the name of Christ. Amen.